Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. This is the first part of our full conversation with Alex Griffith, where we discuss what is a credit rating and the credit rating process at Fitch Ratings. Alex Griffith is a managing director and head of EMEA Corporate Ratings at Fitch Ratings. Fitch Ratings is a credit rating agency that rates the viability of investments relative to the likelihood of default. Fitch is one of the top three credit rating agencies internationally known, along with Moody's and Standard & Poor's. In the episode of today, expect to learn what is a credit rating, how credit rating processes are broken down, how can treasury professionals effectively contribute to the credit rating process, different rating scales used by Fitch Ratings, and like always, much, much more. I really loved our conversation with Alex. He truly is passionate about his topic and extremely fast on answering even our most intricate questions. And we truly hope you will enjoy the episode. If that is the case, and when you are thinking about how you found out about our podcast, chances are that it was through word of mouth, social media, or a recommendation from your favorite podcast platform. And this is our only request to you. The only way we can get more and more amazing guests like Alex and get more people to learn about treasury is thanks to you. So if you enjoy what you hear and maybe learn a thing or two, please consider following the show, leaving a review, or sharing this episode to help others discover it too. With all that being said, please welcome Alex Griffith. Alex, thanks so much for joining. Great to have you on. Can you get us started by telling us what a credit rating actually is? Absolutely. It's important to um, to understand the definitions because it is a little bit technical. Um, and knowing what you're dealing with is the first part of understanding how credit ratings move, how they can be used, all that sort of stuff. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll read a definition here because it's important to get this right. So credit ratings are assigned to issuers or obligations are an opinion on the ability of entity or instrument to meet financial commitments, such as interest or principal on bonds, debt preferred dividends, insurance claims, or counterparty obligations in accordance with the terms of the investment. So there are important, important parts of that. I mean, one, they're an opinion. Uh, there's no absolute right or wrong here. We're effectively trying to forecast the future. Secondly, it's about the, the ability of an entity or instrument to meet financial commitments. So you know, I look at corporates, it's all about can the corporate repay its debt, essentially. You know, we'd normally focus on uh, on bonds and loans as those financial commitments. But sometimes when we're thinking about an entity, our considerations can go further to things like leases, which can sometimes, if they're not honoured, lead to a, a default being recognised. And then there's the final point, which is uh, in accordance with the terms of the investment. So you know, we're trying to to understand here is a company doing what it said it would do in the first instance? You get situations where sometimes payments can be deferred. If that's in line with the original terms of the document, uh, that's unlikely to trigger a default. But if it's something where you know, it even looks fairly plain vanilla, um, it, it, everybody agrees to it, but it's not in accordance with the terms of the investment, that can start to look like it might trigger um, some, some kind of default action on our basis. So how are those used? Why are those important? How are they used in the market? And, and what do people, and specifically treasurers perhaps, what's the importance of treasurer for ratings? 
So, I mean, essentially, one of the things you're doing as a treasurer, and uh, I'm not a treasurer, but I, I understand the job a bit. One of the things you're trying to do is diversify funding sources. Make sure that you've got access to funding from lots of different pools of capital. Now, there are some pools of capital out there, and they're pretty large pools of capital out there, that will only be able to invest in a bond if it's got a credit, la- credit rating. So, you know, typically what we see are, uh, if we have, say, a, a company that's been fairly well banked in its local market, maybe there's a local bond market that doesn't require credit ratings, it's got maybe a local bond, but they're trying to build a really big plant. They need a lot more money, and there they have to seek foreign investors. And usually those investors will want a credit rating. Yeah, they need it for inclusion in indices, for example, where uh, a lot of money is invested in fixed income indices, and some of that eligibility criteria revolves around having a credit rating. Also, a lot of uh, institutional investors in certain funds can't invest in things that aren't rated. The market well-being, Alex, is highly based on trust, right? Yeah. Would you say that the credit ratings help building that trust between the different stakeholders? Because if we were to look at all the like different entities you have out there, financial institutions and so on, even as a, an outstanding corporate, it might be a bit tricky sometimes to know who does what. So would credit ratings help on that aspect? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's why, that's why they exist. So if you're a third-party investor thinking about investing in a bond, you don't have anybody's unbiased in the mix unless the credit rating agencies are involved. So you have the bank who is trying to essentially offload the debt into the market working for their client. You've got the uh, the issuer that obviously wants you to participate in the in the transaction. Uh, what credit ratings offer is a third party unbiased opinion on that. So that's why the markets value them. Uh, you know why they're they're often required by different parties. I mean the, the other thing they can do sometimes is deal with with an asymmetry of information. So yeah, unlike certainly unlike third party investors, we often get parties or our party confidential information that isn't shared with the market. So we might see more detailed forecasts, for example. That is included in our, in our credit rating. We keep the information confidential, but reflect that in, in the rating. So um, often it's also a way of issuers to share a bit more and, and get the credit for, for a bit more where the party they know is firmly committed to confidentiality. The third, you know, the third parties investing in it get the benefit of that but the information is kept is kept within a within a, a sealed wall. So overall, I mean, the, the purpose of these ratings is to have a third party, which is unbiased in the transaction, to give, uh, let's say, objective opinion on the risk level towards investing in certain companies, or for borrowers to lend. Uh, it's it's about it's it's all about credit risk. So it's it's I mean, it's very simplest. It's how likely am I to get my money back? We don't we don't express these things in default probabilities. I, mean, I think I think a lot of people would find it easier if we did. But you know what we're very aware of is the financial conditions can vary an awful lot, and that can vary overall default probabilities. So you know the way that I think about it in very simple terms is if you imagine a ship on the sea, and the ship is the thing that we're rating. Yeah, we're telling you how strong the ship is compared to other ships, we're not trying to forecast what the sea is going to do. So what we get is this relative ranking where we say that a, you know, a double A bond rating should be, um, uh, if we, if we look at it on the aggregate, 
we should see a, a marked difference between the default rate historically for a double A bond rating versus, say, a triple B or a single B. And when we look at our uh, look at our default statistics, that's where we get to. Is there an overlap with the insurance industry in some way? Like, uh, well, I mean, insurers are big, um, a big buyers of bonds, but uh, and there are you know there are various things like credit default swaps and um, so there are there are some. I suppose there are some links, but it's probably not directly. I'd have said uh, it's not. It's well, not it's we're doing credit ratings. We tend to just think about we're focused essentially on the company and, and what it's doing. Less so, in fact, on on the buyers usually. I bring it up because you, you made the ship analogy, and and that was kind of the origin of the insurance industry wasn't from the shipping, and it was again assessing. Can you stop using that analogy. <laughs> no, no, because I mean, it's all about assessing risk, right? At the end of the day, which yeah. I guess insurers are there to profit off of their assessment and their understanding of risk in the market and whatever they're insuring, likelihood of getting the money back or not, and, yep. or having to do a payout, sorry, or not, and then assigning your fee accordingly. But I guess you're not trying to buy into that risk. You're just publishing it, I guess, yep. in a way. Yep. And you have the trust of approval from the market to, okay, if... For example, Fitch gave a certain credit rating, then that that means something to the market, enables trust. That's the important thing if you're in this market is building up a reputation over time of being unbiased, doing the right thing. Uh, we're only of value if uh, the investors that look at bonds genuinely believe that we are independent. If they think that we are not, then we're of no value. So we've built up our reputation over over decades by demonstrably taking an independent independent view. What's the actual process of creating that credit rating? I guess each rating agency has a slightly different. You have your own way. How do you guys do it at Fitch? Yes, they're, they're, all, they're all slightly different. I wouldn't want to speak for my competitors. Uh, they're sort of different, but you know, and I, I can talk corporate credit. There's only so many variables in corporate credit. So, so this will give you a very, very simple, uh, a very, very simple overview. So, what we the way the way we look at it is is there's really two aspects that are that we focus on. I mean, the first is the qualitative side of things, which is all about understanding the business, and then there's the quantitative side of things, which is once you understand that business, working out some metrics you can use to judge it to 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 try and align it a bit more to a uh, to a rating category. So, the way that we we focus at Fitch, and we, you know, I think we tend to do this uh, a bit more zealously than some of our um, some of our competitors potentially. Is we try and really understand that business and use that to forecast results going forward. So when I say we try and understand the business, we we do that via over fifty what we call navigators. So for each each sector you're in, we have a, uh, a sort of a visual aid or a criteria that we set out, which talks about what sort of characteristics are associated with you know a double a in this sector a single a in this sector a triple b in this sector uh, and those will will have qualitative and quantitative aspects associated with them so you know a simple example of a qualitative aspect is scale scale is is on pretty much every navigator and scale is important because you have not just you know potentially a classic economic economies of scale what it typically means is you're more diverse. So if you're if you're diversified across different countries, if there's a problem in one country, the rest of them may well be doing okay. You'll usually be diversified across 
different business lines as well. And what that means is if one business line is not doing very well, the rest are unlikely to go wrong at the same time. But it also gives you leverage over your borrowers. So you know, if you're a small borrower, then it's potentially easier for the bank to turn around saying, no, you need to pay us back now. We don't really care. If you're a gigantic borrower, actually, it becomes more of a negotiation. So there's more at stake from both sides. Uh, it's more of an equal party. So scale is one of the things that runs through a lot of these navigators. But then it can get very, very detailed. So things like reserve life in oil and gas. Things that if you were reading any analyst coverage on a sector, you would see and, and, and they would use to differentiate between, between businesses. But I'm not going to go through every, every single of those 50 navigators, but they are there. They're all available on the website. And if you're really interested in working out how would Fitch think about your business and your and your sector, have a look at those navigators. They uh, they are they're quite comprehensive. So once you've done the qualitative side, we then think about trying to try to sort of come up with an overall risk from the qualitative side. And if you if you're thinking about this in very simple terms, what we're trying to do is work out how stable the revenues are, or, or how stable the the cash flows coming in are really. So you know you think about revenues, think about costs. That generates an amount of cash that you have to play with. You can obviously put some of that in the capex, and some of that will be discretionary. You can start to think about how stable and predictable a position is this. If it's less stable, we'll be looking for you know, higher margins typically, so that when things are going badly, you're not you're not in negative territory. But essentially, assess- assessing how how solid is that cash flow that you'll use to underlie uh, or, or to pay your debt. And what you then do is you say, okay, if, if that is a really stable, steady cash flow. For a certain rating, you can take on more debt because uh, usually there will be less variability and there'll be no point at which or there'll be less likelihood of there being a point at which you can't make those debt repayments. If you've got a very volatile business for a particular rating, you will have a lower leverage allowance. So you know, you'll have maybe one times at uh, investment grade if you're very, very volatile. So, and we look at this in terms of uh, in terms of cash flows, so much, you know, much as we're trying to look at the the generation of cash on the qualitative side, when we look at uh, look at our leverage metrics, I and mean, they're obviously you know, classic sort of business school type leverage would be debt to equity. We find that less useful from a corporate basis because debt to equity, the equity component depends a lot on what choices you've made in the past. If you've grown organically or grown by M and A, you'd have generated balance sheet assets of the M&A, which you wouldn't do if you if you grew organically. And therefore, you could end up with a very skewed set of metrics for actually a very similar sort of company. So we tend to look at how much cash you're generating and play that forward to see what your ability to pay down your debt is. So you put the qualitative and the quantitative together and you come up with the overall rating. Two other points to mention. Really. One is I mentioned understanding the business is important to us. The main reason that is, well, obviously the qualitative is, is, is a big part of this, but it also allows us to forecast. So it allows us to push forward with our thoughts on what the credit metrics might be. So what we often see are, are companies in a state of flux. I mean, there, there are very few circumstances we see where a company is completely dead flat with similar credit metrics. You know, this is a real world, particularly in the last four or five years. Businesses have, have been up and down quite a lot. What we don't do is simply take last year's metrics, say, okay, that's 
that's not appropriate anymore, we'll, we'll mark you up or down. We're aiming for an element of stability to reflect the fundamental of the, of the business. And we do that using our forecasts. Uh, we, we, I suppose, I won't say perfected, but we spent a lot of time working on this during the financial crisis of 2008-9. We trust our forecasts. We spent a lot of time doing them. And we use them to make rating decisions. So, yeah, we're not, we're not backward-looking. We are very, very much forward-looking. What does that mean? I mean, a, a good example of that is if we look to the, uh, look to the pandemic, we were essentially, uh, you know, it was one of those it was terrifying situations, if you're in our position, if you like, because suddenly it's a bit like someone's got a deck of cards and throwing them up in the air. Um, you know, all that you thought you knew was, has just changed. But what we were able to do was say, okay, this is, this is judging by what we understand about this and what's happening with lockdowns, you can fairly quickly say, okay, it's the stuff that needs face-to-face contact that's going to be impacted. And you then think about which of those companies might be more or less impacted based on your initial judgment. And what we did was we, we did a sort of triage, first of all, rank things in terms of you know, looking at how much risk were they and also what's their headroom within the rating. And we triaged and we, we brought them to committee. When we were going to committee, what we looked at was uh, firstly, liquidity. So this is in early 2020. You know, can we can this company get through to the end of the year? But secondly, what do we think it's going to look like at the end of 2021? So you know, looking really the best part of two years out to whether it could get through and recover to something which looks appropriate for its credit rating in terms of its its credit metric, its 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 leverage, its coverage. What that meant was we didn't downgrade as many companies as as we might have done if we were purely knee-jerking. And yeah, we, we've had a reasonable amount of praise in the market of that. But also, yeah, while I look at our, our performance, we've also not seen a vast number of upgrades from the, it was, it was, it was over 100, but you know, comparison to some of our, our competitors, that was quite a limited number of downgrades. We haven't seen many upgrades either, which suggests that what we, what we did do was the correct call in that where we took things down, they did actually stay down for quite a while. And obviously, you know, the current economic circumstances mean that not that many of them have gone back up again. Lots of nuggets here, Alex. To come back to one of the, one of you mentioned. So of course, we're not going to get into the 15 navigators, sorry, but I'm a bit interested because you mentioned those, the visual aids. What is your benchmark then when you look at an industry to come back to one of your first points, like what source of characteristics are associated with any of the ratings, double A, triple B, whatever. What's your benchmark then? How do you determine that? I suppose we look at, so, I mean, it's all slightly circular in that we we also been doing it for quite a while. So we actually put together these navigators by looking at where the ratings originally sat and what characteristics we'd seen in our experience making a positive difference. So, you know, what what we have is a, a track record going back over 20 years showing that our ratings effectively work. And we, we put these navigators in place something like a decade ago so we were very much using our our, our experience but it's it's you know these aren't things which are um i suppose magical or or or, or not um not common sense so scale you know is one other barriers to entry the regulation stable and favorable you know if you're if you're an oil company again i'll go back to that example do you have a lot of reserves in the ground or are you about to run out of oil to you know, extract? So so all of these characteristics, they tend to make sense, particularly if you know the industry. 
And what you then have to do is, is, is obviously start calibrating those. And the way that we, we do that is we say, okay, we, we've got a list of ratings already and we know that broadly how we've got here works. What do we associate with a, you know, with a double A company in terms of its, its reserves or single A company in terms of the regulatory environment you've got to have to reach that? You map the characteristics onto a, a sort of an already known or already opinioned quantity. And then you look at it and say, does this make sense? And obviously, we, we've been working with these for 10 years or so since we, since we did the navigators, and it still seems to be working. So, so you know, there's evidence that it's all, it's all, uh, all making sense to us. Absolutely. What I, what I love about what you're explaining, Alex, is that... So I think most of the people got a bit a taste of what a rating is with the subprime uh, crisis, obviously. Uh, when you get into the corporate world, obviously, you, you see those more and more, but you can easily think that it's mostly a financial statement analysis that is done. Yeah. But what you're explaining is that that's absolutely not the case. You look at the business. So in terms of, we're going to come to it, but in terms of resources and people that are working with you, they're not only finance analysts, those are also business analysts and people who will be able to say, okay, when you mentioned this, is there enough oil in the ground? Is there like, what are the circumstances and the context in which this industry evolves and so on? That's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I tend to think about... Um, you know, all of our all of our people are trained to read and analyze accounts, but I tend to think about that as reading. I mean, you know, it's a bit like uh, going to study and not being able to read the language you're studying. It's kind of the basics. Understanding how a set of financials works, how bond indenture works, is important. But how, understanding how the business works, and we we get a wonderful variety of things, and that's part of the joy of doing this job is that you see all sorts of different different business models and issuers, and, and a lot of them are are really clever so what we get is a lot of people that have an interest in working out how the world works and how you know how that sausage i saw in the supermarket on a hot day when everybody's barbecuing <laughs> managed to make its way there in such quantities uh, yeah that's that's the sort of thing that's that's fascinating to the people that work with. that's really really cool another point you mentioned was mna when you were especially touching upon this debt to equity ratio right my understanding was that companies that are renowned to go through a phase of merger and acquisitions usually tend to have a lower credit rating because there is a bit of uncertainty associated to it. Why is that? Is my perception correct, first of all? If so, why is that? And back to the growth aspect you mentioned, because MA enables that, enables growth, maybe less in a steady way, but growth for sure. So how is the MA aspect impacting the credit rating back to those? How do you actually rate companies? Yeah, so there's, there's, I mean, there's a few things that happen when you get M and A. One is typically, uh, you know, and obviously there are there is failed M and A, and there are problems with M and A sometimes. But the business profile or the the operation, so the the um, the operational profile will improve. So you know, we were saying scale diversification is positive. If you do M and A, and yeah, you know, let's assume you're you're not crazy, right? You've, you've you've thought about it. You're doing it for a good reason. You'll be strengthening your say your, your product portfolio or diversifying into an adjacency and, and you'll be able to realize some synergies from that. So the process of doing MA in terms of getting something else attached to your business is generally positive. You know, there's the question of how much are you paying for it. So if you're if you're paying a large amount of cash for something that maybe doesn't have that many synergies, that's a that's a judgmental point. And we do occasionally see MA that we don't think is brilliant. But for the most part, the people doing it are pretty sensible and it is positive for the operational profile of the business. If we look 
then at the financial profile, it gets a bit trickier. So, you know, obviously there are a few ways to pay for M&A. One is with your own equity. And if that happens, you know, that's certainly for the credit rating, generally the most favorable because there's no additional debt there. Usually there's either a mixture of debt and equity or there is uh, pure debt. And that's where it starts to become a little bit complicated because then it is really a trade-off between how much does the M&A enhance your operational profile versus how much additional debt do you take on? How, do, how much does that increase risk? So, you know, we have companies that do, you might call it you know, single big ticket M&A. You get, you know, giant investment grade companies that will buy uh, a competitor and that will be hugely strategically important, but it tends to be incredibly expensive. So you might see if you've got a, say, two and a half times leverage threshold for somebody, it'll shoot up to four and might stay there for a couple of years. Now, that's where the forecasting gets interesting because we then say, okay, we know that this is business enhancing or we think this is business enhancing. Can we wait for the leverage to come down? And if we are comfortable enough that you know, over a reasonable period, call it one to two years, the additional cash flow is being generated and the commitment of management is such that we can reasonably expect that to come within its tolerance again, the chances are we'll leave the rating where it is. So we, we, we will try not to move if we believe that that is achievable. But obviously that's a, that's a pretty big judgment call and we don't always agree with, with management to do it. They tend to, tend to believe in themselves and sometimes unfortunately we don't. Makes sense. Super cool. That's, that makes a lot of sense. And so when we look at other aspects that the company can influence the credits rating on, how does the role of a corporate treasury department factor into this whole process? I mean, tre treasurers end up usually being the, the people we speak to the most in these processes. It doesn't, doesn't have to be the case, but, but it seems to be just the way of things that treasurers are tasked with, with dealing with capital markets, raising debt, and therefore the credit rating agencies sort of come under them. We have them generally as our, our first point of contact. They'll often pull in people like uh, the investor relations department or potentially the CFO. But for most relationships, it's the treasury team that we are most often speaking to. What does that mean in terms of, in terms of the interaction? I mean, the, the, the person in the treasury team is really the conduit for the rest of the organization. Because yeah, as you've heard, we, are, we will be trying to understand uh, not just about finance and, and strategy and stuff the treasurer spends all day thinking about, but also about the company, its merits, its business model. So typically the treasurer is not going to be able to answer all of that at once. So it's very much about the treasurer bringing in the information that they think we will, we will need, or yeah, we'll usually give questions. So it's a question answer those questions, but very much being that, that sort of conduit to the rest of the organization. Super clear. Um, so if, if I'm a treasurer then, Alex, what can I do proactively to be able to improve that credit rating or to put my company in the best position for that? I suppose that's the thing, you know, the obvious thing that the treasurer can do is have less debt, typically. You know, that, 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 that tends to help. You know, the, other, than, other than fundamentals like what is the structure of your balance sheet, how strong is your business, there's not much that's non-real that a, that, a, that a treasurer can do. I mean, what, what we look for in sort of treasury functions and funding is A, it's the quantum of debt, but also... The term structure, the sources of finance. Uh, you know, are you are you just reliant on a, a local banking relationship, or do you have lots of other options? 
So we'll think about liquidity, and that's obviously the key thing that a treasurer can influence. I mean, hopefully not just for the sake of the credit rating. Hopefully that's part of part of their job. But but yeah, when we look across different treasuries, then the structure of the debt is an important part of what we do, and that's very much within the purview of the treasurer. But yeah, other than that, it's really, I suppose, it, it, it's a question of just understanding what will facilitate the process and make it easier. And, and I suppose developing you know, a bit of trust, the good relationships that we see are ones where we are, we are brought inside. We're not surprised. Um, you know, if, if there's a big M&A, often we get told about it a few days in advance. We can think about it. If there's a problem, we get told about it early and it's managed proactively. So you know, the, the, the same, it's the same sort of skill that you'd see uh, a CFO using with capital markets. It's it's finding a problem and discussing it with a you know with a relationship of trust with 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 your rating agency. I mean, the, you know, the worst things that we that, that we find in these relationships, which inevitably you know tend not to help help the treasurer, are where there's there there are surprises. We feel like that something is being uh, kept away from us. You know, yeah. If I, if I look across all these relationships, developing that relationship of trust is is really important for us. But it's also where we have the you know, the best relationships with treasurers. I'm guessing only companies of a certain size need to start having that close of a relationship with you, right? Like your your normal SME isn't. At what size does a company have to start? At what size does the treasurer of a company have to start worrying about? keeping you guys in the loop with all of these uh, decisions so proactively? Well, I mean, the, we, we tend not to look at small companies. So essentially, if you're big enough to be rated, then yeah, we'd expect those those discussions to be being had. Yeah, we, we don't differentiate between credit ratings. We don't differentiate yeah, the amount of work we do. The process takes often a similar amount of time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, yeah, there's many issues with smaller companies as larger companies. So yeah, I wouldn't say there was any any difference in those relationships, and and obviously, if you're, you know, if, if you're a treasurer with fifty billion of debt to raise, you probably take it as seriously as a treasurer with a billion of debt to raise because it's still your company. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a, a relationship of, of of trust is important uh, on both sides. To be clear, no, so could could you go back a little bit to the credit scale that you've mentioned a couple of times, Alex? So. You mentioned like AAA, AA, et cetera. I think it goes all the way down to D, right? Can you just yeah. like give us a brief overview and, and how that works? Absolutely. So I mean, there, there, are, there are a few few credit ratings that, uh, that people talk about. Uh, usually the credit rating is what we call the issuer default rating technically. In fact, if we're being really technical, we call it the, uh, the long-term foreign currency issuer default rating. So when people talk about the rating that's that's what they're talking about so what issue a default means essentially we're talking about the chances of the company defaulting so fairly clear what that means that yeah, that, that that's all about likely to default foreign currency means we're thinking about obligations that can be traded across border so it's not something where there's potentially transfer and convertibility risks so that they're, they're usually in currencies like dollars euros etc now, and, and long-term means we're looking across a, a longer horizon than short-term ratings, which are slightly different, which are money market related typically. So this is, yeah, this is a few years out effectively. Within that, what we have is 
triple A to D scale. So you have it split triple uh, A to triple uh, B minus, and within each, uh, within most of the the categories, triple you know, A, double A, single A, triple B, you have plus and minus modifiers. So triple uh, B minus is at the lower end of that band. Triple B plus is at the top end of that band. There is a, a, a cutoff between triple B minus and everything below it, which is investment grade versus sub-investment grade. The sub-investment grade is you know, traditionally been associated with with far riskier debt. I mean, you know, in the 1980s, these be called junk bonds in the in the US. I mean, now what we've seen really in the last 10, 15 years is that sub-investment grade part of the market. So these are these are companies which are rated in the double B range, single B range, uh, but still performing performing businesses. That part of the market has expanded quite a lot. So you know that kind of that junk sort of prefix that you that you used to have starts to feel a little bit pejorative. Um, yeah, there are a lot of very good companies issuing at that scale. They're just a little bit smaller than the companies that are investment grade or have a little bit more leverage. So we see a lot of LBOs, for example, with with ratings in the single B territory as part of a uh, you know, part of a corporate strategy to act as part of, say, a private equity group or, or what have you. But putting debt in there is part of what they're doing. But you know that that is part of a, a thought out strategy, and not necessarily because the business is in a in, in a difficult situation. And then below that, you've got so the, the more distressed territory. So B minus and above are essentially performing obligations. Triple C plus. So there's the triple C range, double C and single C, which is, you know, there is a very real default risk present there, uh, as, and more so as you go down the scale. And then there's uh, restricted default and, 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 and default, which is obviously some form of defaults happening. Uh, the, D, um, the D rating itself is essentially something like a liquidation. That's interesting. You touched on like not every company is aiming to always aim for triple A. Absolutely, mm-hmm. um, and you know a lot of the so we we work with companies all over the world in developed markets, emerging markets, and there are there are concerns, particularly once you get into emerging markets, around what the rating can get to as a maximum. So you know you, you might be the best the best company in a in, in a certain country, and you think you should be triple A. Well, actually, your country's rating is is single B. So are you really that much better than the government? Well, essentially, probably not. What we do there sometimes, if there are large, large financial markets, and we see this in some of the emerging markets where you have, uh, say, a, a burgeoning pension market in a, in, a, in a country that's rated maybe double B minus or, or B plus or something, it's not going to be much help to people investing their pension if they know that a whole bunch of stuff is B plus. Everything's B plus in the country. So it's not going to help them differentiate. So what we do is we have essentially sort of the expanded scales that we call national ratings for some of those countries. Uh, and what that's designed to do is to help people decide between the different investments that on an international scale would be uh, a B plus, but we can start to differentiate within that B plus by assigning something which is, let's say, a double A national or triple A national scale. And that that's a, a full rating scale. It just it just starts if you were to map it to investment grade. It starts with B plus equaling triple A. So you, you get that more granularity, so it can become a bit more helpful. So you like scale it according to country, almost exactly, exactly. And do you then do the exact same business analysis, quantitative, qualitative of the government and the local 
of the market as a whole. So you know, actually, that's, not my, that's not my not my area. So I'm sure you can get a sovereign analyst on. They can they can give you a separate hour on sovereign ratings. Yeah, but they they look at you know some of the similar things like governance, like financial profile, and they come up with ratings. It's, it's the same scale they use. But Fitch or independent companies like Fitch, you guys issue a sovereign rating, like a government rating, and then business ratings within that, and then you try and yes, like, so we cover most of the I think all of the relevant or sort of capital market available sector. So sovereigns is a big part of that. We cover most of the world's sovereigns. Obviously, we do financial institutions as well, structured finance, public finance. So yeah, most most of, of what you might see in a in a in a large bond market, uh, Fitch Fitch will do in one one part of the business or other. I look after the you know the I suppose the simple non-financial corporate. Linking back to this indeed so the, the ratings we are we are talking about mostly here. Um, what's the significance of a credit rating for a company in terms of actual impacts? Like, how, what's the, what is at stake for a company when it comes to the credit rating? The main thing is, is the price of the debt. So obviously, if you're potentially loaning somebody money, then you're not just making a yes-no decision. You're making a decision about how much, what's the, what's the interest rate you're going to get on that, on that debt. And, and to an extent, what terms and conditions are you going to, going to demand from the, from the borrower? So. If you're trying to work out what the what the credit risk is, then independent opinions like Fitch's are obviously very important. And one of the things that investors use when they're trying to trying to come up with that uh, with that pricing that pricing view. So, credit ratings mainly have an impact on pricing, but also you know, there are other ways they use. So you can use them to look at your supply chain, for example. Just look at counterparty risk. That's not what they're designed for, but some people do use them as a proxy. Some people like to use them as, as a sort of benchmark for their own internal um, internal governance. So particularly, we see this with groups with private ownership. You know, they don't have the discipline of the capital markets. They need some sort of third third party. So actually getting an independent view on what their creditworthiness is, is very valuable to them. Very interesting. Yeah, so also for the private companies, I didn't even think of that. Makes a lot of sense. And so to state a bit the obvious, Alex, um, because now that we have the main reason and the main impact, what are the consequences of an upgrade in credit rating? And obviously, from an opposite standpoint, about what about the downgrade? Like, what's the impact for a company? It's, it's slightly perverse in the sense that if there's an upgrade, it may well not do anything immediately. Yeah, what it means is the next bond you issue, mm. you may be able to, to negotiate better pricing. A downgrade similarly might not do anything immediately because what we're talking about mainly here is fixed income investments. So the the interest rate is fixed at the start of the uh, start of the period, and it continues until the bond needs to be repaid. It's only when you need to refinance that actually the the rating has an impact on the borrower. The lenders will potentially be marking the bond to market, so uh, it will have an impact on them and on the markets, uh, and that will obviously affect their willingness to 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 lend again in the future. And I think I suppose the you know the, the second point of this is a lot of it is not just about the price, it's also about refinancing. We've seen this in the current market where refinancing is no longer a given. It's more of a question mark uh, about whether companies can get a bond away. If they're if they're you know if they're higher risk, if they're not known by the market, there have been windows where it's been very, very hard to, to just get a deal done. Obviously, negative news on the rating side can make that a bit harder. Because I had in mind, obviously, it will cost more money to borrow money. 
But mm. from a lender standpoint, if you are a public company and you resell the bonds afterwards, it might be trickier for you to resell it, even though you might have had better interest rates on your uh, investment. It's well. It's, it's so. So in theory, if, if you, if the, if the pricing hasn't changed in the interim, so if you're being fairly compensated for the risk, so so it was downgraded, then you 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 bought the bond. It should, yeah. The market should, in theory, all work out. If you bought a bond at five percent and then it gets downgraded, 